Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I have here with me for a second time Dr. Glenn Gare. He is a professor of psychology at the State University of New York at New Polks. And basically we are here today to talk about his new book that has just been released, Positive Evolutionary Psychology, Darwin's Guide to Living a richer life. So, Dr. Gare, thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. Anytime, Ricardo. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, by, by the way, if I could just ask you to show the book to the camera, because unfortunately, I haven't my, my copy yet with me. Sure. Well, by chance, I happen to have a copy right here. And I got to tell you, I am thrilled with the cover. Um, yeah. So this was co-written by myself and an alum of mine, Nicole Wedberg, who is an outstanding writer and, and thinker and was wonderful to work with on this project. Um, and renowned psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman actually wrote the forward to this. So, so here it is. You can get it on Amazon or Oxford University Press's website. Thank you. Okay, it's, it's very nice. A very nice cover. So I, I haven't read it yet, but I mean, uh, with the... Um, the sort of talks that you give and then also the articles you wrote about it, I guess that it should be very interesting and also with what we're going to talk about today. So uh, it's interesting the title Positive Evolutionary Psychology and I guess that the first question I would like to ask you is, first of all, what is positive psychology without the evolutionary bit? Let's put it aside for a second now. And what sorts of issues does it tackle? Sure. So, so that's a great question. Um, I'll step back a little bit and tell you a little about uh, maybe about the context of where this idea came from. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I've been doing work in the field of evolutionary psychology since forever, maybe since the 1990s, um, yeah. if you can remember that epic, uh, that era. And... Uh, I love evolutionary psychology, which is essentially applying Darwinian ideas to questions of behavior, largely human behavior, but behavior more generally. Um, and it's a really super interesting and fun field, and there's a lot of research questions that we've asked, and, and it's just a dynamic and exciting field. Um, but a, an issue that I've kind of run into along the way has been that, to put it briefly, simply, <laughs> Not everyone loves evolutionary psychology. Um, and there's That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And there's a little bit of a feeling among some academics that evolutionary psychology is somehow a force to be used for evil, almost. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm separate from my work as a scholar, I work really hard to be a member of the community. I have a family, I have a big interest in advancing positive outcomes for the community in general on a small scale where I live on a broader scale. So it kind of, you know, it kind of doesn't really sit well with me to sort of think of this academic field that I cherish being seen as somehow working against the positive goals of, of society. So at some point I started thinking about and re doing readings related to this separate field, which we call positive psychology. Um, I'll give you a brief history of positive psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe it was 1990, 
And what's interesting about that is when you look at when evolutionary psychology really became a very substantial field, it was roughly the early 90s as well. In 1990, um, renowned psychologist from University of Pennsylvania, Martin Seligman, emerged as the president of the American Psychological Association, or the APA. And he gave this really famous talk when he accepted um, the presidency and gave his first talk in that capacity. And it was um, very powerful. What he essentially said is, look, psychologists are famous for studying the negatives. We study stress, we study mental disorders, we study anxiety, we study schizophrenia, um, we stu study suicidal ideation, all the bad stuff. And he said, sure, that's important. We need to understand the bad stuff. He's like, but if you step back, human beings have a lot of wonder, a lot of greatness, a lot of you know, virtuous attributes, and maybe a way to sort of help people, if we think of that as a goal of applied psychology, maybe a way to help people is not just focus on the negatives and think about how to fix that, but to focus on the positives and think about how to amplify the positives in an individual sense, in a, in a broader community sense as well. And it was just like, it was brilliant, you know, and with that, with that statement from him, the field of positive psychology essentially emerged on the scene. So a real short version of what is positive psychology, um, it, it is agenda-driven. It is agenda-driven and is an effort to use scientific behavioral sciences or behavioral science methodology to advance positive outcomes in the lives of individuals and positive outcomes in the lives of communities as well. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting because I guess it's not only an issue with evolutionary psychology or at least the way people think about evolutionary psychology and sometimes unfortunately they associate some of the findings with, for example, the right wing or right wing politics. I mean, I'm not sure why because sure. most people in psychology are even left wing, right? So, But, sure. but even looking back at the history of psychology as a broader discipline, I, I guess that it has always been sort of a bias that people had uh, thinking back to, for example, the early psychoanalysts and then also the uh, social psychologists, for example, that people have been focusing mostly on the negative aspects of human psychology and how, how we interact with one another uh, at a social level. So, for example, even the literature on biases and heuristics and stereotypes and prejudices and, and things like that. So, uh, I guess that uh, including the positive side of things, uh, if we didn't do that, we would be excluding at least half of human nature, right? Sure. Yeah, well, well, absolutely. And I, I think it's important to focus on sort of the entirety of the human experience, you know, the positives, the negatives. Um, I mean, that's really what the behavioral sciences are about. And one of the interesting things, and this is one of the insights that led to this idea of positive evolutionary psychology, was the idea that if you look at the content of evolutionary psychology, like evolutionary psychology, I'll define it very quickly, is essentially the application of ideas like natural selection, sexual selection, other Darwinian and evolutionary forces to understanding human mental processes and, and human behavior. 
So that's what evolutionary psychology is. And if you believe in evolution, there's really nothing controversial about that. When you look at the research that evolutionary psychologists focus on, the content is, it's kind of all over the place. I mean, it's an idea that can be applied to behavior in the broadest sense. A lot of the content has been focused on factors related to mating. A lot of it has been focused on things like responses to infidelity, um, aggressive responses to infidelity, homicidal behavior, homicidal behavior related to mating, um, sex differences, natural differences between males and females in terms of things that they desire in mates, ways that they operate in, in mateships and in relationships. And while I think this stuff is absolutely fascinating, and I've published, I think, pretty extensively on all those topics, um, there are some people who don't really like that, or there's some people who say, gosh, you're studying the really dark side of, of human behavior. And I will tell you that I don't fully disagree with that. You know, like there's something to it. Um, can we, can we as evolutionary psychologists start to sort of explore the kinds of questions that positive psychologists are asking and are, you know, suggesting that we, we focus on. And I'm like, yeah, of course we can do that. You know, of course we can do that because evolutionary psychology is flexible enough to really address any question of behavior. So it was really that insight that led to this idea of positive evolutionary psychology. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're saying that it, in fact, uh, there, there's been a bias in evolutionary psychology in terms of also focusing perhaps a little bit too much on the negative uh, aspects of human nature or human behavior. And I'm asking you this because it's interesting uh, recently, I've released an interview with Dr. Marianne Fisher uh, about applying or integrating evolutionary psychology with feminism, mm -hmm. because it seems, or at least she told me that until very recently, um, there were some aspects of human female psychology that weren't given enough attention even in evolutionary psychology and we talked about things like for example female friendships and things like that so do you think that uh, positive evolutionary psychology as a field might be arising now uh, because previously people didn't pay enough attention to those aspects Sure. Yeah. I, um, so I, I know Marianne reasonably well. And uh, I think actually together we were at the first ever meeting of the Feminist Evolutionary Perspective Society. I'm going to guess that goes back to about 2009, maybe 2010, something like that. Um, and I think it's a very parallel idea. Um, so the, the idea of feminism and evolutionary psychology for for you know, a long time, and I'm, this is probably going to be true into the future for a long time as well, to be honest, there are people who say these are irreconcilable. These are perspectives, scholarly approaches that will never be able to be in the same room with one another. And I applaud people like Marianne and people like Rose Chang and people like Becky Birch and Catherine Salmon and Justin Garcia and other people that have said, well, wait a minute, these feminism is really in a the idea that males and females, regardless of gender, should be on equal footing and should be given equal opportunities. And evolutionary psychology is the idea that human behavior can be best understood using evolutionary principles. There's 
nothing conceptually um, wrong with putting these two ideas together. Um, I'm sure, or I'm guessing she talked about her book, Evolution's Empress, mm -hmm. um, published by Oxford several years ago, huge um, scholarly contribution. And it really has chapter after chapter after chapter that says, here's how we can use evolution to help explore and better understand a feminist approach to behavior and understand women's role in evolution and so forth. So I think that's been a really great initiative. And I do think that this idea of positive evolutionary psychology um, hopefully has very similar potential. Mm -hmm. But I mean, positive evolutionary psychology, is it mostly about understanding um, the positive aspects of our human nature or does it also have some sort of moral goal in the sense of, okay, so you're yeah. doing that to try to improve people's lives at the same Yeah, time. sure. Um, it's a very good question. And I haven't heard a particular criticism yet, but I'm anticipating one, which deals with kind of what you're, you're talking about. Um, as scientists, the goal is to understand the nature of things, mm -hmm. period. You know, that's the goal. Whether we like it or not, that's the goal. But there are certain applied areas of science where the goal is to do something specific. So if you're a physicist, you just want to understand the physical world. But if you're an engineer and you're building a bridge, you want to use those ideas because you want to make the best bridge possible. I do see this idea of positive evolutionary psychology as taking a purely scientific enterprise, evolutionary psychology, and, and using it to help advance the goals of what I, I consider an applied scientific enterprise. Um, positive psychologists unapologetically say we are trying to improve the human condition. Evolutionary psychologists are trying to understand human behavior. So this is essentially trying to take these ideas with an agenda and say, okay, well, now we have the scientific research, we have these theories, we have this great body of scientific literature, and let's step back and see what are the goals of positive psychology to make people happier, to make people have better social interactions, to make families more coherent and more cohesive, um, to make people more um, community-oriented, to make communities healthier. Um, you know, personally, I'm thumbs up to all that kind of stuff. And as a citizen of the world, I'm like, yeah, we got to advance all of those goals. So, you know, might someone say, hey, you're kind of conflating or mixing up you know, basic science and some kind of agenda. You know, I, I think we try to address our reasoning very carefully on that point in the book, but I could imagine someone having a, a concern about that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I guess that you also understand why people might come up with that sort of criticism, right? Because Mm -hmm. Particularly when people, uh, more specifically in the social sciences, have some sort of motivations behind their research, for example, then yeah. that might lead them astray. Like, for example, we learned through the replication crisis, right? Because, I, I mean, so just to, make it, just to make it clear, I guess that what you're saying is that it is possible for a science to be applied to improve the human condition, but 
the moral goals themselves shouldn't contaminate the scientific method and how people do research. Is that correct? Ricardo, you have worded that A plus, exactly right. Um, so I'll, I'll, if it's okay, I'll take a little bit of a sidebar because there's another initiative that I've been strongly connected with um, called the Heterodox Psychology Workshop, which is related to the Heterodox Academy and the heterodox movement more generally, which is this idea that a academia has become so homogenous, so monolithic, so um, singular in its kind of underlying philosophy and political stance that it's kind of getting in the way of the goal of academia, which is really to have a lot of different ideas and a lot of perspectives and to be open to ideas and perspectives. Um, and so while I will say politically, I am very much a fan of Bernie Sanders and, and America that has a very singular meaning. Um, I'm also a huge fan of diversity, political diversity, intellectual diversity, diversity in all of its forms. Um, and I feel like while I have my own political interests and, and way of, you know, what I think ought to happen. I want people to be able to speak. I want people to be able to think. And within psychology, um, this has been a real problem. So I'll give you one example. There's an example that's reasonably well documented. There's a speaker, I'm not gonna mention the guy because it doesn't, he doesn't come out well and I'm sure he wasn't meaning to do this. But there was a speaker who gave a talk several years ago, so famous social psychologist. And he talked about a study where there was um, stereotype threat. So stereotype threat is this idea that if before you do some task, someone like throws the stereotype about you and that task at you, you're suddenly gonna do worse. And there was this idea that if you put your gender, male or female, before you took a math aptitude test, um, putting the gender, because apparently, and this is really a very controversial and small effect if it's there, but apparently males on average tend to do a little better on math than do females. And so having a female put female and then do the test, the idea was that maybe that would make them do even worse because of stereotype threat. It was presented as fact by a reasonably renowned social psychologist in a big um, public forum. And someone, some guy kind of looked at the research and said, wait a minute, have you actually read the article that that comes from? That's not what they found. Meanwhile, this guy was asked to give that same talk and invited all around the country to give that same talk because people liked it. Mm -hmm. um, he, um, he presented on it in multiple other contexts. There were university admissions at major universities in the country that actually summarized that in some of their um, materials as if it were true. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is it ended up not being true. The guy who presented it did come back and kind of redacted and say, wait, now that I'm looking at the article more carefully, maybe I wasn't totally right. But it didn't really matter because that scientific finding, even though it wasn't accurate, was consistent with a political narrative that is consistent with the political climate of the country, that we need to equalize the playing field between males and females, that males and females are completely equal and that they've only shown different aptitudes because of inequitable structures. 
these are narratives that are out there. I'm sure that they're partly true in lots of ways, but it wasn't true in this particular case. But this was a case where that scientific finding was so consistent with the political narrative that people didn't question it. It wasn't until this one guy came around and, and questioned it that it was like, oh, it's actually not true. So that's really an example of the kind of thing that the heterodox psychology workshop, we're having a conference in Southern California at Chapman University in January, by the way, and I'd love to see you there, Ricardo. Um, I'm actually on the planning committee and it's a great opportunity um, and it's a great conference to be part of, but that's exactly the kind of thing that we're like really concerned about. Um, so it's interesting that you raise that issue related to my book because my book is definitely, or my and Nicole's book is definitely, we're looking at, you know, we have science, we're presenting science, but we also do have an agenda which is specific to trying to sort of improve the human condition consistent with positive psychology. But I fully agree with you that we got to be very careful to make sure that the agenda does not contaminate the science. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think it was very important for you to clarify that because if you le if we left here some space for people to come up with some sort of critique that wasn't fair uh, in the context, then I mean, and and maybe if I release this interview in time when people start writing their reviews, they they will take that into consideration. I guess. Sure, sure, so, I appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, let's get into the nitty-gritty of the book and uh, the topics that uh, positive evolutionary psychology explores or wants to explore, let's say. Um, and I guess that a good question to start off with would be, so in positive evolutionary psychology, uh, you're not only focused on how people or what people should know about the, the positive aspects of, of their psychology, but it's also important to work with at least the ones that we consider more negative, right? Like, for example, negative emotions and things like that. I mean, it, it's the case here that people have to learn to integrate both things, the positive yeah and the negative aspects of their psychology because they can't simply decide to ditch uh, the all of the negative things that they don't like about how their brains work or something sure. like that. Yeah, the, the negative stuff has a function. I mean, that's a real short version of it. Um, you know, when I started thinking about these ideas, I started looking through journal articles in the field of positive psychology and there's a lot of good stuff there, but I will say one thing that was very glaring to me is that there seems to be a very big, there seems to be a very big focus on happiness. Mm -hmm. Now, hey, don't get me wrong. Thumbs up the happiness. May everyone have lots and lots of happiness. It is not a bad emotion. And there's Journal of Happiness Studies and there's Happiness Societies and books all about improving happiness. Um, but a lot of that stuff, I started looking at through, through these articles and the word evolution doesn't show up. Research in evolutionary psychology doesn't show up. Connections to the entire field of emotions from an evolutionary perspective are not showing up. And to me as an evolutionary psychologist, I'm like, I'm like, dang, that's, that's pretty glaring, right? I mean, if the, if everyone were just happy all the time, 
the world would be a mess right now, right? It'd be like, well, I got to go teach, but I'm pretty happy just hanging them up my office right now so you know that's i don't need to go teach really you know because i'm happy here um you know imagine if your airplane pilot was like you know i, I was gonna fly today to milwaukee and there's 200 people hoping to go there but gosh i'm happy just chilling at the house you know playing Fortnite right now like i mean you know happiness as an end goal as a singular end goal is really problematic um, so what the evolutionary perspective on emotions essentially has to say is that, you know, wait a minute, the negative emotions, the entire suite of emotions that we have, some of them very unpleasant, evolved for a particular reason. Um, Darwin's book in 1872, titled The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals, in a lot of ways goes back as the beginning of the field of evolutionary psychology. And he focuses very much on why does emotion exist, right? So evolutionary psychologists always step back and they say, why do emotions exist? If everything were just about happiness, you know, then happiness would be the only emotion. But we have sadness. We have anger, right? We have frustration. We have surprise. We have disgust. Why do we have those, those negative emotions? I mean, Darwin himself was, was very clear. What is the adaptive function? Um, fast forward several years to a guy named Randy Nessie. So Randy Nessie essentially developed the field of Darwinian medicine and the related field of Darwinian psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And he has a great anecdote, and we elaborate on this in the book. Um, but he was a psychiatrist, and one of his clients was a professor in the area. And the professor came, and the guy was like, I'm having major anxiety. And please help me, whatever you can do, I'm anxious. And so Randy prescribes anti-anxiety pills. The guy comes back two or three weeks later, and Randy says, how you doing? He says, well, I'm not anxious anymore, but I got a pile of papers on my desk this big, and I have no motivation to grade them whatsoever. Um, you know, very simple anecdote, but it tells you, that, hey, maybe happiness is not the end-all, be-all. Maybe anxiety serves a function as well. So I feel like the um, adding evolutionary perspectives to an understanding of emotions can really help positive psychology get beyond a simple make everybody happy angle, which does not make a lot of evolutionary sense. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, this is important because I guess that when people particularly look at the title positive evolutionary psychology, they might be tricked into thinking that is it's some sort of self-help book and it's one of those books about, oh, if you apply these things in your life, you will be happy all the time and nothing will go wrong or something like that. You just have to think positively. Uh, you know, those sorts of things that people say to motivate people. But uh, I mean, you, you're, you're saying that it's in crucially important to acknowledge uh, the role that negative emotions play in, uh, as motivators in our life, right? In the, because, I mean, perhaps not in the short term, but in the long term, if, yeah. if people feel bad and feel motivated to do things that they don't want to do at the present moment, maybe, and probably in the long run, they will bear fruit and... Sure. will maybe even feel happier than they would have been. 
Yes, I think that that's absolutely accurate. Um, and, you know, we have such an industry in the mental health industry right now, and there's such a push in the psychopharmaceuticals, and if you're feeling anxious, take this, and if you're feeling depressed, take that. I, I'm not a thousand percent against that perspective, by the way, but under ancestral conditions, when people had those feelings, they weren't just taking a pill and just smiling and, and sitting there doing nothing. They were changing their behaviors. They were changing their situations. The emotion system evolved to motivate adaptive behaviors. And so if instead of using negative affective reactions or negative emotions to change behaviors, to lead to more adaptive life situations and life environments, um, you know, just, just take a, a, a pill and sit there and smile, it's evolutionarily unnatural. And that approach, the psychopharmacological approach, does not really take our um, full evolutionary history into account. So you asked the question of whether there's uh, something of a self-help component to this book. Um, at the very end, I will say that we have a section, the final chapter is all about um, maybe we call it something like Darwin's guidance for living a richer life. Mm -hmm. And um, I use, we use the word richer very intentionally, right? Because there's a lot of people who think the more money I make, the better off. And that's kind of the end of it. And then once you look into the lives of wealthy people, you're like, oh, they're screwed up like everyone else. <laughs> you know, they've got, they've got problems just like everyone else does. So um, money doesn't buy love. Money doesn't buy happiness. It, it certainly is better to have money than not. But when you think about a rich life, um, it's got to be more than that. And when you look at the evolutionary perspective on behavior, you can start to see, well, humans evolve in certain kind of environments. They evolve to... They evolved an emotion system that pushed them towards certain outcomes that made them feel better, pushed them away from certain outcomes that made them feel worse. Um, we evolved to form close friendships. We evolved to form trusting relationships among ourselves, within our family, within mateships, within friendships, within coalitions. We evolved to be part of communities, to be trusting part of communities. We evolved to... Um, to punish cheaters within communities, and, and we have special evolved mechanisms to, to detect whether someone is cheating or not cheating, and people that cheat get quickly ostracized from communities so that the community more broadly can be positive, and that has um, feedback that goes back to the individuals and their families within the communities. Um, so, you know, what is living a rich life from an evolutionary perspective? I think it's really kind of advancing successfully on all those goals, you know, and then leaving some kind of mark where you have maybe offspring or other kin or even others that you've mentored that you're leaving a legacy that will ultimately be beneficial for, for others, kin and close friends and others in a positive way moving forward, you know? So I guess, you know, I'm at a point in life, Ricardo, where I'm like, all right, I'm not a, I'm not a kid anymore. So I'm thinking about, you know, what's, what's it all about? And I feel like the evolutionary perspective, Darwin's big ideas, really gives you this amazing framework for thinking about that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I was about to ask you about another important concept that we think 
we have to explore here that is the one of evolutionary mismatch. But before yeah. we get into that, since you referred to basically the Darwin's guide to a richer life or something like that, uh, I, I would like to ask you, since we are referring here to evolutionary psychology, and if I'm not mistaken, mistaken evolutionary psychology uh, is, for the most part, is about... Uh, uncovering the universal features of human nature, right? But there's also another side to our psychology that has to do with individual differences and individual variations. So when you got into writing the guide for a richer life, let's say, uh, were you also considering that side of things that may be, uh, that may be okay, so we have this uh, universal uh, evolved psychology that basically is the same for everyone, but maybe there's not one single formula that works for everyone, and maybe different people might give different weights to different aspects of their lives that bring meaning to them or make them happier? I mean, do you yeah. understand what I'm saying? I'm basically ask, yeah. asking you if you took also that aspect into account while writing. Yeah. Uh, that's, a great, that's a great point. And we, we do address that in the book. Um, the, there's a couple different terms for what you're talking about. One term I like to use is strategic pluralism. And strategic pluralism is the idea that regarding some behavioral strategy, there's not always one single approach that works. And sometimes when there's one approach that a lot of individuals are utilizing, that might open the door for some alternative approach to, to have adaptive value within that. Um, a classic example of this is what we call life history strategy. So. Um, life history strategy started as a biological idea talking about differences between species that come from different ecological contexts. Um, species that exist in very stable environments where the environment is very predictable, has a lot of resources, and is kind of all good, um, tend to be what we call slow life history strategists. Um, elephants are kind of like that. Elephants don't have a lot of natural predators. Their environment is very consistent from year to year, um, they have resources that they need, they have a system, they're very intelligent, they're very social, they kind of have a lot of things figured out. They have few offspring, and they care very much for their few offspring. Um, salmon in the Pacific, on the other hand, have very different kinds of environments. There's tons of environmental pressures. Um, they have tons of um, gametes that they release, hundreds of thousands, and they get fertilized, and a very small amount of them actually make it. Um, so that's really much more of a fast life history strategy um, because of the ecological conditions. And if you look at humans, humans are generally what we call a slow life history strategy species because we generally have relatively stable environments in kind of an absolute sense. But there's tons of individual variability. There are certain individuals that live in very unstable environments. There are certain individuals that are raised in very unstable family environments, very unstable neighborhood environments, high crime rates, can't trust parents, there's step parents involved who, who are abusive. 
there could be all kinds of negative things that lead to instability in someone's upbringing or someone's environment. Um, and there's people that live in just, you know, perfectly stable, wonderful, even environments as well. And an optimal strategy towards survival and reproduction, which is what evolutionary psychology focuses on at, at its bottom line, is going to be different. Um, if you grow up in a super stable environment, you're probably going to delay mating, you're probably gonna delay courtship, you're probably gonna wait for a really solid long-term mate, you're probably gonna have fewer kids, you're probably gonna focus more attention and investment on those fewer kids. Um, if you grow up in a wicked, unstable kind of environment where the average um, life expectancy is in the 40s or 50s, um, which is true in lots of parts of the world, um, then you might mate earlier, you might be less concerned about an ideal long-term mate, you might have multiple offspring, which is true of fast life history strategies that we found, find in species where they have very unstable environments, um, and so forth. So what's an optimal behavioral strategy is not, like you're saying, it's not, there's not a single, I mean, regarding some things, there is like fear of heights, don't fall off a cliff. Like that's like a universal, right? There's not some people who try to fall off a cliff and then, you know, it works out well for them. So there are certain things where there's just absolute universals, but regarding a lot of things about human psychology, there's strategic pluralism, a plurality of strategies, multiple strategies that for various reasons have their own adaptive benefits. Um, so there are individual differences from an evolutionary perspective, and that is addressed in the book. And I think that's a really important Mm -hmm. So let's get now into the issue of evolutionary mismatch, because in evolutionary psychology, uh, I mean, you are trying to understand how our minds evolve and how they work and how they process information from the environment, let's say. But uh, the question here is that nowadays, uh, at least in most of the world, people live in societies that are very distant from the ones we evolved in during most of our evolutionary history, right? And that's where evolutionary mismatch comes into the picture. Because, for example, we might be exposed to things that might be problematic because we haven't evolved to deal properly with them in our evolutionary history. Uh, and But, I mean, there's that issue, but there's also the issue that we could be able to, for example, uh, repurpose some of our uh, cognitive tools or uh, that we've evolved to deal better even with the environments that we create. Is that the case? Yeah, I, th I think that's a great way of thinking about it. And essentially, you're talking about um, what we call evolutionary mismatch, mm -hmm. which um, chapter two in the book is titled Ape Out of Water, um, which is just kind of like a, a little play on the phrase fish out of water. So a fish out of water is to me like the clearest and simplest example of evolutionary mismatch. Um, in the summers, I teach about evolution and human behavior in China to a group of really bright students, but English is not their native language. And I was explaining evolutionary mismatch and I eventually got to the point, there was a couple students not quite getting it, and I'm like, fish out of water. And once I came up with that, every student in the room got it, right? So it's really simple, right? So if you have a fish in your fishbowl, it's good. 
That's they were evolved to exist in water. They have gills. They can't breathe on land. Everything about them is designed for an aquatic lifestyle. Um, the second that it jumps out accidentally and lands on your son's carpet, hypothetically, um, it's it's gonna die, right? And then you got to buy another one that kind of looks the same. You know what I'm talking about? Um, but but a fish out of water, um, it, it's not gonna do well. Just like I live in upstate New York, if I try to grow a palm tree in my backyard, it's gonna die, right? So organisms evolve for particular or to match particular environmental conditions. What does that have to do with being human? Well, human beings evolved primarily for the lion's share of our existence as a species in the African savanna before agriculture came on the scene. What's interesting, a lot of times people don't exactly get this. I didn't really get this when I was younger, but we tend to see agriculture and cities as being very different. Like in America, it's like you go to Chicago, big giant city, then you drive for 500 miles through the cornfields and that's agricultural. But stepping back in time, when human beings first developed agriculture, that was a game changer that led to the ability for cities and metropolises to exist. Because before that, all of our ancestors were nomadic. Um, and the reason our ancestors were nomadic is they had to chase the food. They couldn't grow their own food, so they had to chase it. When you have to chase your food, there's a really interesting practical constraint, which has to do with group size. Okay, so I live in a city of about 8,000, which is considered a very small town in New York. We have um, New York City has millions of people. In China, I go to Chongqing, which has 35 million people. Big, giant cities, right? If you had a group of 35 million people and suddenly there was no food here and everyone had to go over the river and over the mountain where the food is, you're not going to coordinate 35 million people and get them there, right? Group size under ancestral conditions and in modern nomadic conditions is practically constrained. Once it passes about 100 or 150 people, it's too much. The best general in the world is not going to be able to hurt all those people in a way that's going to allow them to move. And you might be moving 10, 15, 20 miles in a day, depending on where the food is and depending on what the situation is. Pack up everything, pack up everyone, pack up grandma, pack up the babies, pack up any stuff you got, and we're going, right? So that's the nomadic conditions. Under those conditions, there's lots of different things. First of all, I'll, I'll name some of them. You got tons of exercise, right? You didn't have to spend $500 a month to go to the gym because life was your gym. You were doing lots of exercise every day, no matter what. There was, you could not live a fully sedentary life. Um, all of your food was non-processed, right? They didn't have Twinkies. They didn't have Doritos. Um, they didn't have Hershey bars or you know, they didn't have any of this stuff. You only had non-processed food. So things like obesity and things like type 2 diabetes were not problems back in the day. These are diseases of civilization. Um, another thing is the group that you were in, that was your group. You were born into that group. You were going to live your life and you were going to be surrounded. And that group included only about 100, 150 people. It included kin, a high proportion of the people were kin, so you were surrounded by kin. 
right? Nowadays, we live in contexts where my brother lives in California, my other brother lives in New Jersey, my mom lives in, in Florida. You know, we're kind of all spread out nowadays, but under ancestral conditions, you were surrounded by kin. Kin have a genetic interest in your welfare, so how wonderful would that be? I know family members can fight like dogs and cats at times, but still, at the end of the day, they have a genetic investment in you. But people that were not kin, but were in your small group, in your clan, they were individuals that you were going to see tomorrow and the next day and the next day until one of you died, right? Think about that. That's a totally different environmental context. Um, nowadays, we bump into hundreds or even thousands of strangers every single day. The way that you interact with or deal with a stranger is completely different from how you deal with someone that you know very well or someone that you're genetically related to. So there are so many mismatches in our modern environments and only the evolutionary perspective allows us to step back, think about that and think about the implications for our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, basically in terms of evolutionary mismatch, you're interested in understanding uh, how people deal when they are exposed to these new sorts of stimuli, let's say, in these new environments that we have created. And for example, uh, perhaps you don't talk about the more physiological aspects of what happens when people eat a lot of hamburgers or fast food or something like that, but more about uh, how, how people deal psychologically with the fact that they are exposed to those sorts of foods and then the kinds of consequences that it has for their health, but also maybe, and you referred, for example, the fact that we now live very distanced normally from our kin and we have to deal with a lot of anonymous people, let's say, the sort of uh, psychological impact that those sorts of things might have on our lives, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many things that we have now, especially technologies. So technology is a mixed blessing. And one of the things that I hope people will get out of this book is to be able to sort of step back and say, wait a minute, you know, I work in this industry, we make cell phones or we make processed foods or I recently, just last night, I did an interview for a Toronto radio station, and it was on, ready for this, Ricardo? Sex robots. Sex yeah. robots is a booming industry. They're saying 10, 15 years from now, these are going to be affordable. These are going to be regular. They're going to be incredibly lifelike. That's kind of creepy, man. You know, we, we evolved to have intimate relationships where we had to work on relationships. You know, sex was something that was kind of in certain contexts and we evolved with a whole psychology about it. Now we're going to be able to take that psychology and, you know, with a robot, that's, I don't know, man, I'm a little freaked out by that. Pornography is very similar. Um, the large scale presence of uh, attractive female bodies um, that we see on our phones, on billboards, on TV commercials, it has obviously led to body image issues <clears throat> that we see in women that are very unhealthy um, or often very unhealthy. And guess what? Under ancestral conditions, uh, an adult woman or a developing woman or an adolescent girl was not going to be in a single day um, shown or exposed to hundreds or even thousands of 
perfect, ideal, half-clad images of women. Mm-hmm. But now that's that's just the nature of it. And and the, the leaders of society who, you know, kind of are overseeing things or the people who are overseeing marketing or the people who are, are working for these businesses, they're probably not thinking, huh, I wonder if it's really an evolutionary mismatch to have these images around on a large scale. They're thinking, I want to sell Coke. I want to sell a car. I want to sell Budweiser, um, et cetera. So I feel like the business world can really do well by stepping back and thinking about um, in terms of marketing, in terms of the nature of the products, like how does this match with our evolved psychology so much of it is incredibly mismatched you talked a bit about processed foods um i haven't eaten a single processed food in like four years and i take this stuff really seriously in my own life and i'll tell you if you eat zero processed food you're never hungry you eat as much as you want and you end up absolutely loving the food it's hard to get there i will say that but once you get to it it's like oh like i eat vegetables i eat fruit I eat meat and I eat eggs. Done. That's essentially what was available to our ancestors before agriculture came on the scene. Once agriculture came on the scene, people started making food that was um, that put more fat on you, right? Because we could do that. It was stuff that tasted good. We evolved taste preferences to like stuff that put a lot of fat on you, um, stuff with high carbohydrates, high fat content, high salt content. Um, because there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of famine and a lot of drought under ancestral conditions in the African savannah. So under those conditions, liking food that put fat on your body was really adaptive, right? But once agriculture and cities came on the scene, there weren't famines, there weren't droughts, but the food industry didn't think about our evolved psychology and where it came from. The food industry just made stuff that people liked. Right. And if you just make stuff that people like, you're going to make stuff that we evolved to like because food was rare. So we like stuff that was um, rich in carbohydrates. I'll give you an example. If, if you have a kid's birthday party, everyone who throws a kid's birthday party has this experience. You have the dessert table and on the dessert table, you have the cookies, you have the cake. And then usually mom, sometimes dad, but someone puts out the grapes, right? Right. And if you're like me and you only eat non-processed foods, grapes are like food of the heavens. But if you're a little kid and you see that grape next to that piece of cake, at the end of the day, the grapes are always left on the table. I'll put it that way. The kids are not choosing the grapes. They're not choosing the carrots. They're not choosing vegetables and the reason is because the food industry has made this stuff that just amplifies everything that we evolved to like but we evolved to like that under very different conditions and the food industry doesn't care they just want to sell you know they're a business and they're not evolutionarily informed and i think that's a real problem mm-hmm. but uh, it's not a paleo diet you're exactly advocating for, right? Because, I mean, since you include, for example, vegetables and many of them, we, I mean, we basically over time 
created them right through agriculture. We modified them genetically, even though indirectly, but we modified them. So, uh, I mean, would you also consider, for example, uh, milk and cereals? Because uh, particularly the people who evolved since the last, I guess, 10,000 years or so in agricultural societies, many of them at least are able to process milk sure. and cereals and those sorts of things. Right? Yeah, I personally avoid that stuff. Um, I do avoid cereals and, and milk. And, and again, this is a lot of this is, is kind of personal preference. A lot of it is kind of what's worked better for, for myself. Um, I'd say what I, the way I eat is maybe 90% overlap with, with paleo. I don't necessarily always call it paleo, but it's, you know, it's, it's pretty similar, but it's a real simple idea. You know, it's a real simple idea. Just the processed foods that exist are worse for you on average than our non-processed foods. And that's a very simple algorithm to, um, toward better health. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, I mean, are there any categories that you use in your book to talk about the several different aspects of human life that you explore in, in your book and that you think is important for people to take into account when they are thinking about how to improve their lives, how to be happier and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think so. We, we talk about a lot of different things. We talk about politics, um, the evolutionary <clears throat> origins of politics. We're a political ape. We've evolved to form coalitions um, under ancestral conditions. One of the really interesting hallmarks of humans compared to other species is we can form coalitions and under ancestral conditions, people evolve the ability to throw projectiles. That's, you might not really think about the relevance of that, right? But if you see any other primate, like a chimpanzee, try to throw a projectile, they're not very good at it. Um, but we have, you know, the Olympics, we have javelin, we have baseball, we have um, tennis. There's all kinds of things where we're highlighting our ability to launch projectiles. Well, that ability kind of goes back to when, um, when people started forming coalitions. And if you can form a coalition and everyone can pick up a rock, you can take down an alpha male who's not being fair pretty easily. So one of the, this is a a theory put forward by Joanne Souza and Paul Bingham of Stony Brook University. And it's basically this idea that democracy kind of evolved as a natural thing in humans. And this is why being tall and being big and being bossy is not the only game in town. It's not the only way to be successful as a human. And that's because our coalitional psychology goes way back. And if you have five little guys with rocks, they're going to take down the big guy who's, who's being a jerk. And that simple dynamic can help us understand an awful lot of the politics that we run into in our small scale lives and in the larger world as well. Um, so we talk about politics in some detail. We talk about religion in some detail as well. Um, a very high proportion of people in the world do identify as religious. We've tried very hard to not alienate people um, regarding the religion issue. And in fact, this largely goes to the work of um, David Sloan Wilson of Binghamton University. But um, there's there's a lot of functional aspects to religion. Religion goes back very deep in the human experience. And while religions seem to vary 
from one another in important ways, there are some real basic commonalities among religions. Um, a simple way to think about it that we talk about in the book is what, um, what David Wilson calls the vertical dimension, which is like the reaching out to God or to the su some supernatural entity. Um, there's usually something supernatural within religion, something you need to take on faith. But then there's what he calls the horizontal dimension, which is controlling social behavior of others in a way that creates self-sacrifice and an other-oriented approach, an approach that is really like, I'm going to help someone else. I'm going to give to you first. If I'm sharing food is a classic example. In a religious ceremony, when food is shared, the, the person running the group is usually not going to eat first, right? Sharing food, I have enough for all of us. Here's a big meal. Everyone dig in. You eat first. Um, I'm not going to eat until you've all eaten. Like these things are all um, the speak to the, the function of religion, which is really trying to get people um, in small scale communities to behave in ways that are beneficial for the others. And if you end up creating that, there's lots of benefits that go to the community as a whole um, and feedback to the individuals and to their families as well. So we discuss in some detail the evolutionary psychology of religion and we really do focus, I think, on the positive aspects in that section. Mm -hmm. So uh, religion is very interesting because I guess that when people think about science and religion, they can, for example, think about the new atheists and the takes that they have on religion. And uh, I've already had uh, some of the main cognitive scientists of religion on the show. And it's very unfortunate that the new atheists deal with religion as they do because they sort of look at it as something that go against uh, uh, or goes against reality or facts or science. But the thing here is that not only religion is highly functional at the social level, but also people need for their lives to have meaning at least more than facts, right? I mean, they need values, they need meaning. And if they don't take that from religion, then they would need some sort of substitute for that. But in any way, it's still values and meaning and all those sorts of things, right? Yeah, I think that's a super interesting point. Um, there are people who are militantly anti-religion and I don't like, I, I am somewhat sympathetic. I understand where that's coming from. Sure, um, sure. I don't identify as that way myself. And, and uh, one of the things that you're, you're talking about is the importance of, of finding meaning. And religious, deeply religious people find meaning in the context of their religion. I mean, might I look at that and say, well, that's, you know, that's like believing in Santa Claus, you know, some of it, per perhaps. But I think what's so important is the function that it has for people, right? So, like, if it really, if the religion helps people deal with loss, deal with adverse situations, um, get themselves to cultivate things like forgiveness, like love, uh, I'm all for that. You know, I really am. Um, one thing I will say is there's, um, there's a way to think about evolution that has this extraordinary spiritual um, side. And Darwin himself had a very famous quote, which is that there is grandeur in this view of life. You know, so he himself was a religious Christian man. 
he knew the reason he sat on Origin of the Species for so long before publishing it was because he said it was like discovering a murder. He knew full well that it was going to change our understanding of the human experience fully, immediately, and permanently. And he did that. You know, he didn't, he almost didn't want to do that, but he did that. But additionally, for my money, what he did was he gave us an alternative, dare I say, spiritual way to think about what it means to be human. The evolutionary perspective puts all of life on equal footing, right? Being a human is no better than being a spider, is no better than being a blade of grass, is no better being than being a, a wasp in the garden. You know, it puts all of life on equal footing. And not only does it do that, but it ties everything back to common ancestors, right? So Ricardo, I think you're very nice. I think you're great to work with. I've never met you in person, but I think it's outstanding that you and I ultimately come from the same common ancestors, going back to early primates, going back before that, going back to replicators near a warm vent in the sea over 3 billion years ago. If that's not spiritual, I don't know what is. Right. And I mean, perhaps going a little bit back to the issue of evolutionary mismatch and now talking about the evolution of our morality, I guess that we evolved mostly to deal with kin and with friends and perhaps with our group of 100 to 150 people, let's say. I mean, is there anything in evolutionary psychology that would point to the possibility of people really being able to further expand their moral circles and include, for example, the entire humanity? And since you were referring to our place in the biological world, even including other species like other sentient beings and things like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I, I feel like um, when you push the evolutionary perspective to the boundaries, which I'm a big fan of, by the way, um, you really start to see the, it's, it's, well, first of all, it's very humbling, right? E the evolutionary perspective is very humbling. Like, it feels great to be here now, but we're a flash in the pan. And that's okay. You know, we have to understand that. Um, in the future, we've, we're, you know, I've got two kids and I've got hundreds or thousands of alumni around the world that I want the best for, you know, and I'm, you've got people that you've touched, that you've influenced, so you want to have a positive world for into the future. Um, you know, the idea of sustainability, the idea of creating larger ecosystems that are sustainable, that are positive, um, the idea of pushing boundaries of in-groups. So human psychology is really big into what we call in-group, out-group reasoning, right? And under ancestral conditions, you were in this clan and over there, there was another clan. There were two different clans. This was your group. That was the other group, right? But to, um, to think in in-group, out-group ways is, it turns out, incredibly easy, which shows how basic a property of our evolved psychology this is. Um, if, if you're in an, another country and you see someone, if I see someone with like a New York shirt and I'm in Europe, I'm like, hey, and I'll have a conversation. I'll feel some like amazing bond with that person and then we'll walk away and I'll be like, that's stupid. I just passed 10,000 other people on the street, but that, you know, like, wow, we're both from, from New York, you know, that's, who cares? 
you know, but, but I care and that person cares. Like, like we have such a mentality that's about in group, out group. Um, one of the, the things that I feel like is important is sort of expanding the in group, right? So there are some people who focus on, on their nation first. Um, there are some people who focus on maybe their state first or like a really small scale community. But once you sort of expand that in group, um, which can be done in a lot of different ways. It's partly done um, by creating and like relatively successful, thriving environments, right? So if you have like a like a group of nations and everyone's kind of doing well, and and there's a lot of efforts to sort of bring people back and forth, like with um, study abroad experiences, international education. Once you start creating that you start putting people from different places and different backgrounds on equal footing and seeing themselves as having the same goals. Um, I think that's really important, you know, for people's own individual health and, and mentality and lives, but also for what we're going to leave forward into the future. So I'll tell you a little bit about it. I raised the fact that I teach in the summers and in China. Dude, when I first went to Chongqing, China, I'd never been anywhere like it. I had no idea what I was in for. I was expecting differences, right? That's kind of what you expect when you go somewhere different. Um, the language, of course, is very different. Certain things in the culture are different. I got on the campus. I started working with students. The stu there was two sections of 45, so almost 100 students that I'm working with intensively. And some had really good English, some not so good. Um, but the first thing that I thought of, the first thing that hit me, you know, I've been teaching college students for a very long time. I'm like, they're the same as the students in New York. There's some super bright sit in the front students. There's some really outspoken students. There's some I'm not going to come to class every day in the back kind of students. Um, there's students who come talk to me at the end of class and ask the same exact questions that my students in New York have been asking me for years. When you use examples about boyfriends and girlfriends, when you use examples about fathers and daughters, they laugh at the same stuff. They care about the same stuff. When you ask them what they want to do on their summer vacations, they say the same thing that the students in New York are saying, the same things that the students in Portugal are saying. And, and it just hit me. I'm like, wow, here I am in this unbelievably different part of the world. And sure, you can focus on the differences, and, and that stuff's easy to spot and famous. But the universal nature, the commonality that I felt with the people there, and that I still feel with the people there, was so powerful. And I'm like, dang, that's what we need to cultivate as a broader world community right now. Mm -hmm. And since we're talking about also human relationships and social relationships, I guess that a very interesting bit that I guess you explore in the book and that you've done some work on is the impact of estrangements and the importance of making amends. So uh, could, you, could you tell us about that and why it is so important for people to take that into account when they are establishing relationships with other people? Sure. So yeah, it's a couple different a couple different things there. And we actually published an article recently in Current Psychology, published by my research team, the New Paltz Evolutionary Psychology Lab. We summarized some of the data in in the book. Um, and this article, like I said, recently came out. And I can describe them both pretty pretty uh, briefly, I think. 
um, because they capture what we're thinking of as research on the topic of positive evolutionary psychology. How can we have positive relationships? How can we foster positive relationships? Well, the opposite of a positive relationship is an estrangement. It's when you say, you're dead to me, I'm dead to you, we're never gonna talk to each other again. If I see you in the grocery store, I'm immediately gonna go to the tinfoil aisle, you know, and wait till you're in the other aisle kind of thing. Um, this can happen with an ex, this can happen with a family member that's been estranged. Under ancestral conditions, we had small groups. And one single estrangement, if there was one person you were on the outs with in a small group, that could be pretty bad because that person has friends and family and people have always gossiped and people always talk. And if you're out with two people or three people, you know, suddenly it can start get kind of dicey. So the number we predicted in this research that the number, simply the number of estrangements you have in your life will be predictive of all kinds of adverse psychological and social outcomes, largely because under ancestral conditions, it would have been survival threatening, threatening to survival. Um, and this is exactly what we found. The average number of estrangements that American college students in our sample reported was about four. So the average college student says there's about four people in the world that are dead to me right now. Some people said zero. Some people said one or two. One person said 27. I feel bad for this person, right? That's got to be a hard life. Um, and then when you look at their psychological profile, people who have a high number of estrangements show all kinds of um, adverse outcomes. It's a ubiquitous pattern. So it cuts across emotional states. Um, they're more anxious. They're more depressed. They had poor attachment. They said they had a, a problems with getting attached to other people. They reported having very low social support from their family, very low social support from their friends. They reported being manipulative and psychopathic in their own personal tendencies. Um, so, you know, when you think about here's a relationship, maybe it's a toxic relationship, maybe I should think about cutting ties with this person. I guess a piece of guidance that this research has is, you know, that might be the way to go, but take a little pause because a simple rule in life is the more estrangements in your world, the worse off you're going to end up being, you know, so just one, one thing to sort of um, keep in mind, I guess. And the second study we, we looked at had to do with responses to social transgressions. There's times when, when people wrong you. And people can wrong you in different kinds of ways, and it can be a small slight, or it can be something absolutely terrible. Um, so it can be small, or it can be big. It can be personal, or it can be non-personal. And people might apologize, and people might not apologize. And so we did a study where we manipulated all those different things. And the real short version of what we found was that the apology actually matters a lot less than we thought it would. Right? We thought, well. You know, if someone has a really nice, genuine apology, maybe that can offset um, the adverse consequences of a transgression. But in the research that we did, apology had almost no effect whatsoever. Um, if it was a personal transgression, and if it was a major transgression, people were way less likely to forgive the other person. Um, and so again, in terms of what does it take to form positive social relationships within a community, um, there's a lesson there. Mm -hmm. there's a lesson. And uh, does this kind of behavior of estranging other people correlate in any way with a set 
of personality traits, like for example, the dark, the dark triad or something like that? Yeah, so in the first study um, on estrangements, people who score high in the dark triad, so people who are narcissistic, people who are psychopathic or don't care about the feelings of others, um, people that are manipulative or Machiavellian, um, those people had a lot of estrangements relative to people who were not high on those traits. So that we thought was kind of interesting. We talked earlier about like a particular behavioral strategy that almost seems like a behavioral strategy. In the second study, we found something else very interesting with the dark triad, which was that people who scored high in the dark triad, when they were insulted or when there was a transgression against them, no matter what, they tended to say, I want revenge. So when you think about the psychology of revenge, some people are vengeful and they want revenge on others. And some people are like, you know, I'm mad at that person, but just I'm mad at that person. You know, that's, there's a big difference on that. And some people are like, I'm going to get my revenge. The people who are more likely to really seek out revenge, even with a minor transgression or a minor slight, tend to be people who score high on each facet of the dark triad. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in general, would you say that it is a fair assessment to say that in your book you care about uh, the ways by which people can improve their lives individually, but also what they as individuals can do for their communities, for example, and also uh, how communities themselves and even we as humanity can improve things both for the collective and for, and for individuals taking into account our evolved psychology. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. I'd say that's a really good assessment of um, kind of a bottom line of what we're trying to do in this particular book. Um, you know, when you're building a community, think about our evolved psychology. If 150 is about the cap of an ancestral human community, Try and create groups that are no bigger than that. If you have an organization of 10,000, try to create subclusters that are maybe 100, 150 deep. Um, try to create opportunities for people to meet others in person instead of just communicating by cell phones or email because under ancestral conditions, all interactions were face-to-face, were -face, right? Try to cultivate altruism. Try to discourage um, cheating and motivation to cheat and motivation to sort of exploit others. So there's, there's tons of lessons on how to build structures that are better for individuals and better for the health of communities more generally. Mm -hmm. So there's always an interplay between the individual and the collective, right? Because, for example, sometimes when people think about things from an evolutionary perspective, they think about selfish genes and selfish individuals yeah. and things like that. But in fact, at least we as humans, as social creatures, I mean, I, I don't know if you have any take on, for example, group selection and things like that, but uh, it seems that at least uh, our social positioning was always very important during our evolutionary history. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, so I'm, I'm at the beginning of a new academic semester right now. And um, starting, I have two sections of evolutionary psychology. And I always tell my students, I'm going to start with a bunch of cold, nasty examples. And all the examples I start with are selfish behaviors, um, like nasty, ugly, selfish behaviors. Um, one example I talked about the other day was that step parents are 100 times more likely to engage in physical abuse 
than our non-step parents. From an evolutionary perspective, we can understand that. From any perspective, it's disgusting and disturbing to think about. How can we take that selfish gene idea and use that to understand cooperative behavior, altruistic behavior, loving behavior, selfless behavior, um, the building of communities, the building of trusting bonds between individuals. Honestly, if you read this book, Positive Evolutionary Psychology, the secret is right in here. Um, and the field of evolutionary psychology generally, I think, has done a great job of saying, sure, we are evolved organisms. The selfish gene applies to every single last bit of who we are. But if you look at the research and you look at ideas like multi-level selection, you can start to see how humans have capacity for extraordinary things like love, um, altruism, community, and this is also all part of our evolutionary heritage. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Gare, is there any other topic that you cover in your book that we haven't talked about yet? I mean, of course, we can't cover the entire book in this interview, but I mean, any other thing having to do with individuals or how they establish relationships with one another or, or at least, I mean, any final message that you would like to leave? One, I guess one final message, and I'll give a specific example that we cover in the book and then maybe um, broaden it a bit, um, has to do with, I think we need to be very wary about new technologies. We're at a time right now where technology and technological advancement is absolutely exponential in so many ways. And that's kind of great in some ways. I guess you can tell I'm not a huge fan of tech technology, um, but... I understand the benefits and I understand why it's that way and we're not gonna stop it. Personally, what I'd like to see is the technology industry should have employees who are educated in evolutionary psychology. So I'll, I'll give one example, um, cell phones. Cell phones and other online media are in so many ways absolutely destructive to the human experience. And one of the reasons, and I in the book we talk about many, um, but one of the reasons is that human beings under ancestral conditions, if we were gonna communicate with each other, it was going to be face to face. And for 99% of the human experience, that was the only kind of interaction that existed, right? We can now hide behind a screen. I can now communicate with someone in what we call a de-individuated manner, either I'm not face-to-face, -face, so I can say something nasty that I would never say before, or I can slight them or insult them or lie to them in a way that is not face-to-face, -face, so it's easy for me to do. Or there's tons of interactions nowadays where I, I don't even know who I'm interacting with, right? People are interacting all the time with people that they don't know who it is. People's identities are, are hidden. What we know from the social psychological literature is that when people's identities are de-individuated, that's exactly when people are more likely to engage in deceptive behavior, antisocial behavior, aggressive behavior, mean, nasty behavior. And we see things like online bullying all the time. Um, I think that the, tech, the technological advances that have happened have really not taken into account our evolved psychology. And I think that this, with cell phones and with online social media, it's a classic, clear example of that. And I hope that into the future, and I hope that this book will really, really sort of help um, open people's eyes to this, 
I'm hoping that into the future, people will become aware of this as we advance with future technologies and other products into our shared future. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, Dr. Gare, before we go, would you like to tell people what are the best places on the internet for them to find a little bit more about your work and also show the book one last time to the camera so that people can go and buy it? I haven't yet got my copy, but it seems very interesting. So, Very good. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much, Ricardo. So, I do um, write a blog for Psychology Today. It's called Darwin's Subterranean World, and I have over 300 posts. I'm addicted to it. I'll admit it. I love posting. I post on topics of evolutionary psychology. I post on the topic of evolution generally. Um, I post on topics of intimate relationships, of friendships, altruism. I post on the topic of um, college student development, which is a very big focus of mine. So, and I've generally gotten positive feedback about my blog. So check out my blog at, uh, um, on psychology today. And if you go to Amazon or the website for Oxford university press, you can find positive evolutionary psychology, Darwin's guide for living a richer life. And I'd love to hear email and feedback from you with your thoughts. So thank you so much. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Gare, thank you again for coming a second time on the show. And it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me, Ricardo. Hi, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, you also have the alternatives of Subscribestar or PayPal. And please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Kondriano, Jane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Ely, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingard, and my three producers, Cesar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.